With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Howard Smith, and I'm going to be your host today, along with World Business Academy President Ronaldo Brutico for today's program. And our program is going to be New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Just as a way of background, I'm a uh, Vice President, Wealth Advisor, and Estate Planning Consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney here in California, and I'm also a member of the World Business Academy. Additionally, I'm the past Chairman of the Board of the Ventura County, California Economic Development Association. Beginning with today's call, we're moving towards a new magazine-style format, which as always will include questions and comments from you, the audience. We already have several questions in the queue today, so if you'd like to place a question, please dial in to us at area code 347-989-8946. Let me repeat that number, 347-989-8946. As we look at today's magazine format, Ronaldo will be covering three major topics today along with a lightning round period. The main topics we're going to discuss today will be, first, whether there's going to be a double-dip recession, second, when and how the unemployment rate will improve, and three, how you can profit by knowing whether the climate skeptics are right or not. After the second segment, we're going to be doing what we call a lightning round, a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes covering such matters as commercial real estate, housing, consumer spending, gold, energy, and the dollar. Once again, that call, to play, that number rather, to place your questions, and you can do this at any time, is area code 347-989-8946. Ronaldo, let me turn it over to you, and we'll get started. Thank you. Well, Howard, Howard, thank you very much for joining us today, and, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, this dialogue. Um, how's the sound on this, Howard? Is it Okay, are you, am I coming through all right? I think you're coming through okay it's at the moment. We seem to be all right. Okay. Again, so, for those of you listening for the first time, this is our first test of this system, so we may have a few rough spots, and um, we'll try to get through them today. And, and, and it'll only get better from here. <laughs> so real, really briefly, uh, as everyone knows who's been on the call before, I'll, I'm going to just a very brief overview of um, the global economy uh, in, uh, and then a slightly longer but also brief overview of the U.S. economy, and then we're going to launch into our agenda for today. Basically, the global economy, as we said last month, is in fact coming out of the recession. It's out of the recession at this point. It's making a slow climb upward. There are a lot of positive signs in various sectors of the world. I'm not going to go into all of them. If there are questions, I'm happy to touch on what's going on in Europe, Eastern Europe, Latin America, Asia, Southeast Asia, China, et cetera, Japan. All those are places that we cover regularly with our econ forecast team. And uh, we just recently completed a meeting of that team not more than uh, 10 days ago. So we're really up to date on that. And I can give anyone who'd like answers to specific global questions. Uh, and particularly if someone like Jet Thurman's on the phone, who often chimes in from uh, Denmark, uh, we can talk about those issues if, if Jet would like, because I, I don't like to make this too U.S.-centric. However, the vast majority of our callers, of course, are from the United States, and so I try to, to touch on that more heavily. With regard to the United States, it's very clear that the recession in the United States also has uh, ended, meaning we've, we've bottomed out. We're slowly climbing out of it. Uh, some of the first encouraging results, as people have seen, have been a positive uh, GDP growth or gross domestic product growth um, in this quarter that just is coming to, to an end. Uh, we know we had a slight growth also in the third quarter. Um, we're looking here at Christmas sales being at or slightly above last year. Uh, we're looking at the continuing improvement through the first and second and third quarters of next year. Again, a very slow L-shaped recovery. Uh, we'll talk about double dip later, but a very slow building recovery that we think will uh, 
basically put the platform of the United States in a very strong um, uh, way that would give us a new platform, a new, new, new plateau of activity, of economic activity, which is more sustainable than creating the bubbles that we've historically seen. And they just let me a note saying that that uh, microphone's not working as well. Howard, is this working a little better? Uh, that sounds a little bit clearer, yes. Good, okay. So basically what we've got is a situation where uh, the president, and we'll speak some more about unemployment later, but the president has been delighted that we've got the unemployment um, slowing down to the point where uh, the original Academy projection from two years ago, actually, I think will turn out to be true, meaning that we'll see peaking in the first quarter of uh, next year of unemployment and a continual decline from that point forward. Uh, we've seen about 55, 56% of the stimulus money spent on highway construction, and that's really started to have some effect. Uh, highway and transportation uh, we will see continuing spending on that original stimulus bill throughout the first, second, and third quarter of next year all of which will take the unemployment rate down starting the first quarter. You'll see it start to fall, as it's already begun, really. But I think you'll see that as a permanent decline. You'll see some significant numbers, and it'll be steady a month-after-month -month decline. There may be a little aberration for seasonal adjustment somewhere in there, but over the next 12 months, you're going to see unemployment continue to decline as one of the lagging benefits of an improving economy. So that's sort of it right now from a broad overview perspective. Um, looking forward to touching on any specific areas that people would like to talk about. For example, the president's proposal uh, that he made about uh, reallocating uh, revenues uh, from the TARP bill into, uh, into employment uh, trajectories that could improve the employment situation. Also looking forward for any questions people want to ask about where we are with commodities, where real estate's going to be, all those things can come up in our specific uh, conversation. But for now, I'm feeling very positive that um, calm hands are at the tiller. The ship of state is sailing in rough but now smoother waters. I do not uh, believe we are at the precipice that we were at a year ago of basically financial Armageddon. Uh, we've pulled back from that. And I believe that the president is now and his administration are tackling all the issues in the best way they can, given the challenges they have with a extremely difficult congressional uh, situation. So hopefully the support the administration needs to do more of these things will be there so that we can accelerate the climate and the economy can improve even faster. Um, I think that's where I'll stop for the overview, unless, Howard, you've got any specific things that you'd like me to go into. Well, I'd like to relate that to whether or not you think, in our first topic, there is going to be this double-dip recession. We hear a lot about that in the media. People keep talking about this impending collapse of commercial real estate. Uh, do you think that's going to happen? Do you think we're going to go into a second downward cycle before we pull out of this? Yeah, well, let's take that comment about collapse in commercial real estate first. Um, clearly, there's significant deterioration ahead for commercial real estate. I, I don't think anybody's really expecting commercial real estate to hold steady. Um, it is going to, it's going to decline over the next few quarters, uh, not as severely as the housing market fell off the cliff for different reasons. Um, but, we, but we are certainly going to see some, um, we, we, we do have an excess of office space capacity in, in virtually all the major markets. Some markets are serious over capacity, other markets just to some excess that we can absorb certainly over the next six to nine months safely. So that's going to cause a problem. There's no question that's going to cause a problem. It, it will, however, also support small business uh, formation and it will support small businesses obtaining uh, lower overhead structures as they react first, which small business always does, to the, um, to the uh, economic climate. So you'll see the small business units forming up, taking advantage of some of these very good prices in commercial real estate. You'll see a lot of pain. You'll see some additional commercial real estate foreclosures without doubt. And as that sorts itself out through 2010, that will cause downward pressure on the economy. In addition, as many people say, and they're, they're, they understand this, I think, uh, many people realize that we're in a situation where the foreclosure um, of homes is still at an extremely perilous rate. With, with the, the, the number of uh, mortgages that are now in default, the number of mortgages which are um, in, in late in payment, and the number of mortgages which are uh, being foreclosed on is astronomically high and going higher. 
I think the administration correctly understands this problem. They've been trying to jawbone the banks into being more aggressive in renegotiating those home mortgages. That jawboning up until now has not worked, and so I see a new combination of forces that are coming to play, which you'll see in the first quarter, which will cause the banks to start lending more aggressively for, for, for uh, renegotiated loans. Uh, I expect that program well, to let's do Let's pause there for a second, because from what I hear, that situation with getting banks to actually loan money um, has not been successful up to this point in time. And do you think the actions that the federal government has, or the tools the federal government has at its resources, can actually get that to change successfully? Yeah, yeah. First of all, um, just to complete the prior answer, I do not see a double dip, and I'm, we'll look forward to questions about why, given the negative facts I've just said, there won't be a double dip. But let me segue right away to your question. Uh, Howard, the, the federal government has tremendous tools at its disposal. Uh, it just hasn't been willing to use them. Uh, I personally fault Timothy Geithner and Larry Summers for that. Uh, when Obama came into office, he really could barely spell the word economics. He, he, he didn't claim to be someone who understands economics at a sophisticated level. And he inherited uh, basically because uh, he believed that Bob Rubin, whose reputation was still intact at that point, many people thought Bob Rubin, uh, Secretary of Treasury under Clinton, was the best Secretary of Treasury, one of the best in the history of the United States. And I think when he was in office, he probably was. And he certainly was the architect of the, the Clinton recovery, which took all the massive deficits and turned them into structural surpluses uh, during the Clinton era. Uh, but by the time he got the city corp, either because he'd lost his edge or because he'd gotten older, because he'd become too entwined with, the, um, with his old buddies at Goldman and, and his new buddies at Citigroup, uh, Bob Rubin lost his way, and by inflicting, if you will, on Obama, his protege, Larry Summers, who also boosted his protege, Tim Geithner, into the White House, uh, I think uh, Rubin did a terrible disservice to the administration. So Obama came in not really knowing much about the economy, relying on Summers and Geithner, which he came to find out wasn't prudent. And, um, and having to be a quick student, fortunately, this particular president is, is a lightning student. He's an extraordinarily quick student. He started to learn what he needed to know, and he's, he's on a track now where he certainly gets it. If you look into the last three or four major speeches on the on economic matters, he's hit the bell every single time. I, I don't think there's a uh, Republican or Democratic governor or large city mayor any mayor of any reasonable sized city who doesn't think that what he said the other day about jobs uh, and infrastructure repair isn't absolutely 100% right on the money, unless that individual is so doctrinaire they're just talking for political purposes. But if you ask even Republican governors, Republican, senators, uh, Republican city ma uh, mayors, you will find that they also are embracing a, a way of looking at this economic crisis that uh, supports the belief that Obama is developing his own independent awareness of the economy. And he's now relying on Paul Krugman, uh, who, someone who Larry Summers would not have otherwise let into the White House. He's relying, uh, he's reading Joseph Stiglitz. He's reading other alternative economists who are providing him with a different point of view. By the way, Stiglitz and Krugman, you're talking about a Nobel Prize winning economist. So not, these are not people who are unimpressive. And their views were not getting through. Now they are. I think that Obama's using a very balanced approach. Specifically, what tools does, do we have? Well, the tragedy is the Fed had all the tools they needed before the crisis and didn't use them. One of the reasons I'm not a big Geithner fan is I think, that, first of all, as president of New York Fed, Geithner was in a position to have stopped much of the insanity that has occurred and didn't. Um, and then we promoted him to Secretary of Treasury. I, I think that was an unwise decision, but for a man who didn't know economics, relying on Bob Rubin's record, Larry Summers' advice, who had advised the president during the campaign, he went along with it. I think in hindsight he realized that that was a mistake, and now he's been reaching out beyond Geithner and beyond Summers. The tools the Fed has all by itself to reframe the way that banks lend are enormous. The tools that we have through the uh, through various government agencies, for example, um, the way with the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, has enormous power over the way banks lend. The ability of the PAYSAR to come down. Here's a simple one: the United States government should never have removed the Glass-Steagall Act, which was adopted during the Depression, to keep banks from getting into the problem that precisely happened once they removed Glass-Steagall. Glass-Steagall was a bill that kept the banks activities as lenders 
separate from their activities as investment bankers. They separated. There was a wall down the middle, and you couldn't, under Glass-Steagall, take a bank that should be making home mortgages, business loans, consumer loans, and put it in the investment banking business. When Glass-Steagall was removed, which was a terrible uh, flaw in judgment, and something, by the way, the Academy has talked about for a long time. We've been on this since it happened. Well, when they removed Glass-Steagall, the banks went wild and said, gee, if we, if we can gamble and make way more money, why would we make a car loan? So what the Paysar is doing is by lowering the amount of money that can be made at Bank of America or Citigroup and the like, by lowering the amount of money they can make, the gamblers will leave the banks. They'll go back to Wall Street in these new boutique firms that are sprouting up, which is fine because then they won't have your money in mind. And the people that will be left, they don't need to make $5 million a year or $50 billion a year if all they're making is car loans and home loans and business loans. So what's going to happen is by the pays are clamping down on the pay, the Wall Street mechanics, the Wall Street gamblers will leave our banks like B of A and Citigroup. And what will be left are guys who make a half a million or a million or a million and a half a year, which is a lot of money for most people, I've got to tell you. And they'll be left, and those people will be doing the loans that we want them to do, and that's just the Pazar's part. So I've touched on three separate agencies and a couple of different ways that they have levers. The bottom line is, yes, the federal government has tremendous ability to stop this, even without congressional approval. However, the Congress should come to the fore now because financial reform has not happened, and the result is there's more gambling going on today than there was six months ago, and that's wrong. Renato, let me bring up one question that we already had come in. This is from Carolyn Hamilton, relates a little bit to what you're saying, and also to remind our viewers that if they do want, if they're already online, they do want to ask a question. All they need to do is hit the pound and the number one sign, and we will be able to uh, cue them in here. Uh, but that question from Carolyn uh, relates to Obama, and it says, uh, "Do you still believe Obama is acting in our best interest as president?" Oh, absolutely. I think that. Um um, it's no secret I've been a fan uh, of Obama since he ran, and I'm a bigger fan now. And I say that as a person who hasn't, hasn't been a – I've been an in, a registered independent. And I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I've been a registered independent for more than a decade. And uh, my view of this man's ability just is astounding. He, What he is doing – I mean, take the stimulus. Remember, the stimulus bill was passed without a single Republican vote. Clearly, it's created at least 1.6 million jobs. Clearly, this guy was handed when he walked in the door on a war in Iraq that was completely out of control, which appears now to be under control, a war in Afghanistan that was lost, an economy that was in worse shape than it was, including the Great Depression, um, and a factious uh, resistance called the Party of No, the Republican Party, which to a person has resisted everything he's done to try and bring the economy around, and, and in doing that, uh, has succeeded despite uh, despite all these um, uh, resistance movements, which are petty and foolish and not in the interest of the American people. Now, in doing all of that, I've found him to be articulate. He's continued to hold up a vision. He's continued to be accurate. He's had to bob and weave and tack a little bit, as politicians do in, in, the, in the course of everyday um, compromise. But I find him to be totally consistent, and when he steps out on an issue – he delivers on it, and the way he's delivering has brought us out of the recession, has basically brought us to the end of the war in Iraq. It's winding down very, very quickly now, and successfully, it appears. has brought us to the point where unemployment peaked out last month. It might tick up a little bit in January, but it's going down from here on out. So basically, even though there's a tremendous problem with 10 million people unemployed, probably 17 million who are underemployed in total, unemployed or underemployed. When you take all those numbers together, uh, this guy is doing an amazing job, and he's hitting all the right points. Uh, what he said two days ago on the economy and job creation was bang and spot on. Uh, what he said this morning um, in, when he received the Nobel Peace Prize was so impressive. I, I, was, I was shaving this morning. I heard Republican commentators like Pat Buchanan saying people can't find fault with this, this speech because what he did is he defended American foreign policy, and he tied up for the world and American public the true issues of war and peace. So he's not just a communicator. He's not just a brilliant mind. He's not just a brilliant student. He's somebody who integrates and holds the best interests of the American people and executes on it 
in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. Uh, the quality of this man's ability is, is beyond Clinton's by far. Okay, before we move on to the next topic, we do have one call from the 319 area code. I'm going to open up that line and call it. You're alive now, and go ahead and ask your question. Hey, Ronaldo, Hal Mass over here. I am Stuart Valentine's partner. Um, have a couple quick questions for you. Uh, Welcome again first, to the call. Welcome to the call again. It's good to have you on. Yes, thank you, and nice to talk with you. Um, earlier, you said that you were no longer uh, believing in a double dip recession, and that you would explain why. And I'm very curious to hear your reasons. Yeah. Actually, I never believed in a double dip, uh, and I said, but I think that the issue of a double dip is behind us. The reasons I started to give before, I gave you the negative reasons. What I was outlining why people think that it might happen. The answer is this: the recovery that's already underway is premised on a very, very um, sound, non-bubble-oriented approach. In other words, the temptation of a political party that's in office will always be to solve something with a quick fix, which could, can then create another bubble. And the example I'd give you is the bubble that we created in housing was designed by Greenspan and the Republicans to take your eye off the bubble that collapsed in 2001 called tech stocks. Remember that? So the yes. idea to take you out of the tech stock pain was to quickly inflate, and, 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 and Greenspan admitted that's what he was doing, both in front of the Congress last year and also, I mean, this year, and, and, and actually in, in his writings. So that bubble creation leads to a bigger problem, or certainly as big a problem, later on. It just defers the pain. If we'd have done something like that with this recession, we'd have gone for a cheap shot, so to speak. I believe we would have been running the risk of a double uh, of a double dip. But because what we did was painfully slow and proper, meaning a very slow L-shaped recovery, um, we didn't attack jobs first and not attack the lending second. We we had to put the blood back in the human circulatory system of our financial system called money, so that we could be patient and thereby create jobs. If we'd have gone too fast on the one, we'd have screwed up the other. So it, when I look at the double dip situation, I say to myself, what would what would likely happen when we've now reduced consumer spending? It was as low as six percent off, Hal, at the at the at the depth of this um, recession. It's still around three four percent off, which is where it should be. In fact, I think it's a wonderful thing that consumer spending is down. I think it's a wonderful thing that consumer savings is up, and I think it will continue to go up because the ratio of net worth, which was over 625% of disposable income, that ratio was out of whack with everything in history since 1952 when we started measuring it. So instead now, you're down in the 575 area and, and dropping. 575, 572, that's more close to the, to, to the average since 1952. So net worth, as measured by your asset in your house and other net worth assets, stock assets, etc., as a ratio to your disposable income is coming back into control. And that means that people have been successful already in saving, and they're going to continue saving because they got shocked so bad. Them saving more is a great way for us to change the economy so it's not dependent 76% up until the recession on consumer spending and get it down to a more normal 72 70%. Now, what makes up for the difference between the 70% that they say we would like the consumers to spend, currently they're spending 72, and the 76% they used to spend? How do we get that 4% back? And what Obama's done is he's moved money out of the military budget from programs like the F-22. Now, he didn't lower the military budget, but he killed off the F-22, and he's increasing veterans' benefits by $3.5 billion. He's moving money into soldiers' pay. When you do that, you multiply the consumer effect throughout the economy. Whereas when you pay money in, in those tens of billions of dollars for weapon systems that no one will ever want or ever use, but only go to enrich the Beltway bandits outside of Washington, when you do that, that money gets you a multiplier of about one and a half to one. When you take that same money and you put it into veterans' benefits, which means into doctors' pockets and nurses' pockets and rent and janitors in our veterans' administration system, you get a five to one multiplier. That's an example of things that the government's doing to take up the slack. When you put out a stimulus bill, for example, of $750 billion in the domestic economy, you're going to get five times $750 billion back again. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward, by the way, to the Green Sector Jobs Initiative, which is coming next. And watch that one 
dramatically increasing. It's going to be coming post-Copenhagen. Do you know that investors with a total of $13 trillion in assets have said publicly that they believe that, that the Copenhagen meeting happening this week and next will be the beginning of the next 10 to 20 years of economic development on the planet Earth. And they're looking forward to it because it's going to be driving the green sector. And that and green the, sector the, drive is going to replace the, this was, it's going to replace the tech drive of, the, of two years ago. All those together are reasons why I don't think you'll have a double dip. Okay. How was now, there, was there you a second kind of, question there? I'm sorry, what's that? I said, did you have a second question you wanted to follow up on? And I, I, like I did, and, and you kind of alluded to what the answer might be, Ronaldo, and that is looking at total indebtedness of the United States, including individuals, corporations, and government, we've remained relatively constant while the corporations and individuals uh, have been reducing their debt, which is a powerful deflationary force. Government has been increasing debt at about the same rate, um, leaving me worried about the possibility of an eventual exit plan. I don't see one. Uh, how do we get the indebtedness of the United States under control? Okay. First of all, deficits per se are not a bad thing. So deficits in a growing economy are a bad thing. We should have been accumulating surpluses since 2001 when our economy was strong up until 2008 and 2009. We didn't do that, so we should have been paying. Instead, we had massive deficits created, A, to finance the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy, and B, to finance two wars that were being paid for but hidden off the balance sheet. In doing that, we created massive deficits, which now are structural, meaning they have to be serviced with debt money, meaning the interest burden goes up and up and up. I want to give you an example of where we are, however, today. Because see, the biggest deficit we could create in this country would be the deficit of a worker who doesn't work. That's an asset that's gone forever. So if we put people back to work and we use debt money to do that, that's not a deficit. That's a, I mean, technically it's a deficit, but it's an investment. It's like a company going to a bank and borrowing money to build a new factory so they can sell cars or trucks or pencils or paper. When you borrow money for a, for a going concern and you use that debt to finance new growth, that debt is actually a handy tool if it's in proportion to the overall net worth of the company and the balance sheet. You agree with that concept? We have Hal off the line. Hang on. Okay, so Hal, so we'll assume Hal agrees with that. Hopefully he does. He can tell us later. <laughs> okay. Now, I'm going to start with 1946, the debt-to-equity ratio. The debt of the United States in 1946 after World War II was 122%. We're nowhere near that. And it dropped to less than 10% over the next two and a half decades. Why? Because the money that was owed by the end of World War II to pay for that war was converted, and we called it the peacetime conversion, converted into, the planes were converted into cars and trucks, and uh, the tanks were converted into railroad cars, um, the Liberty ships were converted into ocean liners. In other words, we took the money we were spending on a wartime effort that was draining us, we put it into the domestic sector, the, and, the, and, the, and the domestic economy rose so fast that the ratio of the debt to GMP, so 122% of GMP was the debt in 1946, it got to less than 10% by the 60s. And that's because what we did is we invested in the domestic economy. This president knows that, and that investment is what will cause the deficit to come down because the economy is going to grow so much faster as a result. There are a couple of technical answers I could give you and would love to give you if you want to ask a follow-on question later, but I'm going to wrap it at this point so we can go to the next subject. All right. Let me just add one point that from what we hear through our Morgan Stanley research, we believe that the debt that has been created by the federal government during this time is still less, or the, the extra money flowing into the economy from debt creation is less than the amount of the budgets the 50 states have cut, so that, in fact, we're in a net deficit for additional government spending at this point. But let me move on and first remind our audience, if you want to ask a question, to please hit pound and the number one sign, and we'll open up the line at that point. But let's move on to the lightning round, Ronaldo. And our first quick hit on this is, Again, we're going to cover commercial real estate, housing, consumer spending, gold, energy, and the dollar. Let's begin with commercial real estate and your thoughts on that. 
commercial real estate, as noted earlier, we're going to continue to see stress there, which means values of buildings and properties will go down. There'll be downward pressure on rents, good time to rent a property, bad time to be a landlord. Expect that to continue for the foreseeable future. That will turn around later part of 2010, not today. Okay, housing. Housing. Uh, you're going to, first of all, housing, I think, is in, in most markets now. I'm excluding California, uh, Nevada, and Florida in this comment. In most markets, housing has already bottomed out, meaning that the market seems to be absorbing the new housing stock coming available. We can see that in terms of the resale markets. The pricing of housing seems to have dr- uh, stopped uh, dropping and is leveling off. Uh, in California, Florida, and Nevada, the price of housing is slowing its descent quite a bit. So even those places are starting to turn. Uh, basically, this is the best time in the history of your life, Howard, to buy a house. Uh, right now, the combination of available 30-year mortgage money for anything below a jumbo, which is what's called conforming loan for uh, federal government purposes, if you've got a conforming loan, you're going to get a rate of five and a quarter percent over 30 years. So the rate is going to be fabulously low and locked in. And we're going into an inflationary period, so getting a locked-in rate is really smart right now. And on top of that, you're getting close to the bottom of the market on prices. So you have best price you're going to have combined with the best finance you're going to have. Those two working in tandem is so rare. If you are 50 years old, you haven't seen it this good in your lifetime. If you're 10 years old, you're probably not going to see it that good for the next 40 years. Right. Okay, next up, uh, we have consumer spending. I touched on that. Consumer spending, I think you're going to see Christmas this year was flat to a little bit ahead of last year, which is good. It's not not declining. And if you look at electronic sales, um, which is the new form of retailing, and you compare it year over year, and I'm just using the Black Fridays and Black Monday numbers of uh, late November, which is what people key off for the Christmas season. I believe uh, electronic retailing is up about 14% this year, which is fabulous. And it did that without pushing brick-and-mortar retail into negative territory. So net-net, I'm expecting that Christmas will be slightly above last year, at least 1%, maybe even 1.5%, but it will not go negative. On the question of gold, we actually had a question about that earlier, uh, several questions. And the question related to gold was, would gold or silver be a wise investment now, even with gold over $1,200 an ounce? I think it's a little bit under that today. but um, Well, for, for actually, Howard, would we, I'm so glad. I hope people go back and listen to last month's call, because last month this question came up, and I said, I wouldn't buy or sell gold. If you own it, hold it. If you don't. Don't jump in right now. I see as much risk on the downside as I see profit potential on the upside, and I can see it going sideways for a while. And as you know, in the last month, gold has gone down. Uh, And I think that is probably more likely. Gold will continue to go sideways or down. If you have it, don't sell it yet. But if you don't have it, don't go running out to buy it. Gold goes up on two factors, fear and risk of inflation. What's happening in the global economy, and particularly the United States right now, is that the risk of inflation is picking up as the economy gets better, but the fear of economic collapse is falling as faster faster. Hence, part of the driver for gold's rise has been removed, the flight to safety, and the part of the gold support system, which is based on inflation, I think is already accounted for in that number when you get up to the 1,200 range, and I'm not sure what we hit today, but I seem to recall we're at 1120 something like that today. So, the number I saw recently also when I looked earlier. Yeah, so it's down from where we were last week, and I'm, I think I'll stick with the advice from last month, rather, which is if you own it, keep it. If you don't own it, don't buy it, and just see what happens next. Okay, next up is a quick hit on energy without getting into the code. Energy, I think, is fabulous. Last month we talked about the fact that the oil companies were doing everything they could to drive the price of a barrel of oil higher that those efforts were meeting with resistance. They've continued to meet with resistance. Last month on this call, uh, oil was at $78 a barrel. Today it's at 70 so it's come down. I think that's a good range, the 70 to 80 range, in the absence of an international collapse, of an international crisis of some sort. Um, I would see oil going sideways. I would see natural gas, which fell a little recently, but isn't going to fall much more, I don't think. Um, I think energy basically is uh, stabilizing, and I, get, I think the real issue is what happens in Copenhagen, because the goal of Copenhagen is not to reach a final treaty. The goal of Copenhagen is to be the point of departure where the planet as a t- an entire global system de- dedicates itself to leaving fossil fuels. 
So what we are doing, ladies and gentlemen, we're standing on the precipice of the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era, which began in 1900. That's a stunning observation. If true, I think it is true. And that means that all the energy stocks that you think of as conventional versus all that you think of as transitional or uh, green sector, all these ratios are all now in play. And as they play, you're going to see these transitionary fuels have a bigger and bigger role, which will continue to put downward pressure on the price of oil. Not that it will keep it capped or push it down to the 35 you saw this, this year earlier, but what it will do is keep oil more in line with inflation or below inflation, and that begins to make the savings on a net basis to the economy, very, very positive. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm real happy that, that the energy will be supporting a recovery and also another reason why you won't see a double dip. Okay. And our last topic is the dollar, but before we jump into that on the lightning round, we do have a question related to that that uh, Carolyn Hamilton had sent in earlier. And let me read that question to you. Um, and the question reads as follows. We have heard rumors that the dollar will devalue and that U.S. money will be lumped together with Canadian and Mexican currency to form one currency. Do you believe this will happen? And if so, would it mean a large drop in the value of the U.S. dollar? And let me just remind our viewers before you start that if they do want to pose a question, to hit pound and the number one uh, to place their question. First of all, the, the um, what do they call it when somebody makes one of these up? The urban legend, I think, is what they call it. The urban legend that there is some secret plan afoot by the Illuminati to combine the Canadian dollar, the American dollar, and the Mexican peso is completely without merit and basis. There is no such plan at any level of government. Now, does that mean that it wouldn't be prudent at some day in the future to consider such an alignment, given that we have what's called the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA? I believe there are many reasons why NAFTA could start having serious conversations two years or more in the future about some sort of currency alignment. But I don't think you're going to see something in this country in the foreseeable future, and certainly not in this president's current administration. You are not going to see any attempt to create a North American equivalent of the euro in Europe. That's not going to happen. Uh, there's no serious discussions going on in that, and no serious discussions are likely to start for reasons I could go into. So I, I, I would dismiss that. I wouldn't put any energy into it at all. Don't even bother tracking the conversation. It's just a waste of time. Okay. On the other hand, with regard to the dollar itself, the dollar will continue to weaken. I think it will weaken against the Canadian dollar. I believe it will, it will continue to weaken against the Brazilian real. As you know, it made a little rally in the last two weeks. Uh, so the real, which was at 41 a year ago, to the dollar went up to 58. Now it's down to 57, uh, and that's what the Brazilian government doing everything it can to push the price down and being unsuccessful. In fact, I think it got as low as 56 yesterday. Um, but the, the 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 overall trajectory, the long-term trajectory, meaning the next year and beyond, of the U.S. dollar is that it still is too high relative to the amount of structural inflation that's been created by creating the amount of debt that's out there. Now, I don't believe we're going to see runaway inflation at this point. I do think there's an inflation bias in the built-in, and you're going to start to see it rearing its ugly head by the end of the first quarter and certainly into the second quarter of next year. However, that inflation bias is not significant enough if it's properly managed to cause the dollar to, dr to dramatically go down. And there are too many people who own dollars that are, have a vested interest in keeping it up. I'm referring to the Chinese and, uh, and the Japanese, uh, among others. I mean, the, the, the fact is too many people own too many dollars to want to see the dollar deteriorate badly. And it's not in the U.S. government's interest to let it deteriorate too quickly. So it won't. And it has a lot of tools at its disposal to keep that from happening. I see further softening in the dollar. I do believe that as against the euro, the Canadian dollar, the Brazilian real, it will drop against all of those some small amount. I'm not sure if it's enough of an amount to get into the business of getting into currency hedging, but if I were going to be concerned about the dollar in any direction, I'd say the bias towards the downside, meaning the likelihood is that it'll be worth less a year from today than it is today, is quite high in my mind. I don't see any way that it can go up in value, and I going sideways would be more than we could hope for. So, and, and by the way, I'm not sure it's a good thing to have it go sideways because um, it makes our export industry more competitive if it needs to slide down just a little bit. Let me ask you, going back to the Canadian dollar, the Canadian dollar seems to be indirectly connected to the value of oil. When oil is high, there seems to be an increase in the Canadian currency because of the oil sands drilling in uh, western Canada. Do you think if 
oil starts to drop in price, that the Canadian dollar will follow that relative to the American, or that it'll maintain its uh, position where it is right now in the 90s. Well, first of all, I think I think I think no question, Howard, the the the, um, the availability of the tar sands oil is enormous uh, in, in what it supports to the Canadian economy, and don't forget that the principal thing they use to extract that oil is natural gas, and natural gas is at all time lows in terms of pricing. So, if you ever want it, and I'm totally against tar sand oil extraction as, for a bunch of reasons. But if you were going to do tar sand extractions, having low natural gas prices optimizes the value of that barrel of oil to the Canadian government. So there's no question that the price of oil going up is good for the Canadian economy. However, Canada is rich in all sorts of natural resources, not just oil. So what you're going to see is, as, because you're going to continue to see fundamental economies, uh, commodities such as uh, the, uh, copper, nickel, um, I think you're going to see uh, forest goods products as well. But fundamental uh, commodities, I, I didn't touch on housing, that the, the new starts are down, which they should be, which is allowing the housing market to absorb the uh, existing stock. But when new starts build late next year, they'll start buying lumber and they'll be buying it from Canada. In other words, when the economy, when economy goes into positive territory, out of the recession as it's done in the third quarter, and globally as well as in the U.S., when that happens... Those countries that are mineral-rich, rich in natural resources, tend to do well because they have the commodities and they sell them. Look at what Australia has been doing for the last few years. They avoided the recession because China keeps buying so many of their minerals. So I believe that Canada's basket of mineral wealth, its, it's natural resource wealth, uh, trees, oil, minerals, is, is so broad that it will do well on any kind of commodity recovery, which I think is happening now. And in addition to that, what will happen, I believe, is that you will see that the Canadian economy has adjusted very um, remarkably quickly to what happened to it because it was such a big supplier to Detroit. So Canada is clearly out of a recession. Uh, Canada, by the way, has good banking laws, which, has, which none of the banks in Canada got in trouble when all of ours were in, in deep yogurt virtually. So Canada has a lot of things that stabilize it and make it a very strong economy. It lost its unique... Uh, the value of the U.S. relationship, uh, meaning that our, our imports from Canada dropped during the, the depth of the recession, but that's even that's starting to pick up now. So I believe Canada is very strong. I think oil at $70 a barrel doesn't hurt Canada. I think oil down around $50 a barrel would, but even if it got that low, which I do not anticipate it will do, um, there are other bre uh, commodities in that basket, and there's other strengths in the Canadian economy besides banking, service sector, and the manufacturing sectors, all of which would more than compensate for a $20 drop in the price of a barrel oil, which I don't think is coming. Okay. Before we move on to the, our last topic, which is going to be about climate and the Copenhagen meetings, uh, we have one quick question here about the unemployment rate. Um, do you see that improving or getting worse in the near future? And if you see it turning around, when do you think it will turn? Yeah, well, as I said earlier in my comments on this call, um, we, we, we've actually had one month here where it's dropped from 10.2 to 10%. Um, that's an early indicator. Uh, I could see it blipping up a little bit because you get seasonal adjustments this time of the year that can that can drive a, the, the real number a half a point in either direction. But basically, we are at the peak of unemployment now. And what you're going to see starting in the first quarter, is, and again, with January, you may see an aberration because of, of, of seasonal of fluctuations that are that's not really central to the overall economy. Um, it's possible you'll see some continuing in unemployment rise in January, but I doubt it. Uh, I think you're going to see continuing improvement slow right now and gathering more momentum by the end of the first quarter. By the end of the second quarter, it will be very clear that unemployment is on its way down. If some of the measures that the administration are proposing, if the president is successful in getting the Congress to let him use direct spending, either in the form of the stimulus money or uh, letting them re redirect the TARP money directly to infrastructure, which is what all the governors want. Now, the Republicans are going to try and stop that because they don't want the unemployment rate to come down. It's a terrible thing to say. The Republicans don't want the unemployment rate to come down too fast because they want to use it as a weapon in the elections. I think that's just heinous. I think that's just atrocious. We should all be rooting for the unemployment rate to come down as quickly as possible as long as it's done with an economically sound policy. And since the only argument I've heard against spending money to bring unemployment down is that it increases the deficit, 
and I've already ad- addressed the fact that an unemployed worker is worse for the deficit long term than the dollar you spent because that's an investment, which you get back with rising economic activity. I, I find it outrageous that the Congress would even think about trying to rein in this president's attempt, as he outlined three days ago, to increase job stimulation. So I think we're at the peak now. It will come down slow and steady without congressional support, whether they like it or not, and certainly fast enough to make the point by the time you have the next set of elections that that it's clear that that problem was solved also. So I, I, I just think that if they would cooperate, it could happen quicker, the economy could take off faster in a solid way based on good fundamentals. I, therefore, do not see unemployment continuing up. I see it coming down, and I'm pretty excited it could come down a lot faster safely if um, the Congress would step up and, and, and do the right thing instead of trying to do the political thing. Okay. Before we jump into that last topic, I remind our viewers and listeners that if they want to ask a question, to simply hit the pound and the one key on your phone, and we will pull you in. Um, our last topic is going to be, and the question was framed this way, uh, how can one profit by knowing whether the climate skeptics are right or wrong? And perhaps relate that to in our last 15 minutes here. Um with what's going on in Copenhagen. Well, that's uh, thanks for that question. Cause it, uh, it, it turned out when we did this agenda several weeks ago, we we weren't focusing specifically on on an article that which just we just finished last night. And uh, everybody who is uh, on this call as a subscriber or a member of the academy will be receiving a copy of an article I just finished last night that uh, Madeline and I just finished editing last night on Copenhagen and what's what's really at stake there and what's going to come from Copenhagen and beyond. Let me summarize this though. First point of the first part of it is climate skepticism. I've, I've gotten to the point, Howard, where I don't even talk about it anymore. What I say to people is, there is no good argument that the Earth is flat. It just isn't. So if anybody says to me they're a proponent of the flat Earth theory, I say, great. Let's talk about ball games or sports because it's clear there's no intelligent conversation that can follow from that statement. Climate skepticism is in the same category. There is no conceivable good argument I've ever heard, and I don't ever expect to hear one, that the climate is not being adversely affected by human CO2. Uh, It's being so badly affected that this year will go down as one of the worst five worst years in the history of recorded uh, ever recorded. Remember, we're recording the temperature of the Earth now for hundreds of thousands of years by looking at ice core samples. So uh, this decade will go down as the hottest by far in human history, and certainly pre-human history, uh, up to the point where, um, if you go back to the era where volcanic action was heavy, and uh, say a million six years ago. But in the in the course of human history, this is by far the hottest decade, and this is one of the hottest years that we're in right now. Having said that, climate skepticism is junk science. It's stuff that was paid for by oil companies, coal companies, utilities, to confuse the public into thinking that there was some question here when there, in fact, is no question. The fact is the emissions of CO2, greenhouse gases, methane that we're doing into the atmosphere, is causing the heat of the planet to get so out of control that we're about to go into what's called a negative feedback loop, if we're not already in it, where the off-gassing of methane from the melting of the permafrost accelerates the heating of the planet, which in turn causes the Arctic ice to melt, which has happened, to in clear turn causes every glacier in the history of every glacier in the entire planet to melt rapidly, uh, has caused the Greenland ice sheet to gallop towards the ocean. Okay, and uh, there's just no way I can have a conversation with somebody who says, gee, I'm not sure if there really is a problem with climate change. There is, and if that's, if you're not sure of it, go do your homework. Of the 2,000 top scientists in the world who have been reporting on this issue repeatedly, year after year, for the last 10 years, you will find less than 10 who are climate skeptics. And those people are typically on the payroll of the oil companies, the coal companies, or uh, the, um, uh, the utilities. So there's really no, there's no debatable scientific issue. Now, having said that, what can come out of this climate change crisis that we're in? One of two things will happen. We will either continue on this path, the negative feedback loop will kick in, and human population will be decimated. Let me give you a number for decimated. I believe that the record is very, very clear right now that 6 billion people 
will be died or severely hurt. Six billion, that means one in every seven, will be hurt or dead as a result of climate change if we don't act extraordinarily fast and if we don't go about reconstructing the damage we've already done. So people have to understand, we're not talking about something that's going to be a minor dislocation for a few million people or minor amounts of death and destruction. We're talking about the destruction of human civilization as we know it. And that's what's coming if we don't change and change fast. And even if we do change, if the negative feedback loop has kicked in, which many people think it has, and if it hasn't, it's about to any second, we would have to geoengineer the planet backwards to reestablish a safe climate. We're not putting any resources into geoengineering right now, and we must. Now, what's the positive thing that comes out of climate change and the Copenhagen meetings? I believe that Copenhagen is the beginning of the point in which the human society has decided that it must make this its next major project. It's bigger than anything we've ever tackled before as a human civilization, and we need to do it, and I think Copenhagen is the beginning of that place, where we change the planetary fuel system fossil fuel based and we start moving it towards the hydrogen economy using what are called transitionary fuels to get us there now that will create enormous wealth i mentioned earlier in this call investors with a total of 13 trillion dollars have already identified that the next 10 to 20 years will be hugely economically uplifting. In other words, we'll, we'll create tremendous wealth because of the opportunities that are being created in the green sector. This is going to do more to improve the global economy than the tech revolution did. Do people remember what it was like before personal computers? Do they remember what it was like before we had, when we only had typewriters that were manual? Do they remember before fax machines? Do they remember before the web? They've forgotten that we lived, all that stuff didn't exist not too long ago. And the wealth that's been created in the last, say, roughly 30 years by the technologies I just mentioned, 30 to 40 years, has represented probably 75% of the total wealth creation in that same 30 to 40 years. That times two or three is what's coming with the green sector, meaning the benefits of global wealth that were created out of the tech uh, manifestation of the last 30 to 40 years will be less than half of the economic benefit generated by what's going to come out of Copenhagen. So does it pay you to know what's coming out of Copenhagen? You bet it does. Do you, no person on this earth can have an investment in a 401k or a savings account or anywhere else which is thoughtfully invested and safe if they do not take into consideration what's coming out of Copenhagen. And I am delighted that calls like this will give us the opportunity, the Academy, to keep pinpointing how that will affect people month by month in their respective pocketbooks. My joy will be watching and listening to stories come back to me about people who kept following our advice as they've done the last couple of years. So we've got all those stories of people who followed our advice that never lost their money in the crash and are doing well today. I love hearing those stories. I can't wait till two years from today when people say to me, gee, Ronaldo, we were listening to what you said about Copenhagen, about the green sector job growth, and on all those calls, you kept giving us ways to invest in the future, and we did it, and we did really, really well, and our neighbors who didn't basically found out they were dinosaurs. So this is the new sunrise economic activity, and you have to have your eyes on it. I'm delighted the Academy will do it, and we'll be keeping reporting to you on a regular basis. And just for those who don't know, I'll end with this. We just formed an alliance with a very popular website called truthout.org. Again, truthout.org, who is now going to regularly feature the Academy's work as its economic um, reporting. And Truthout, which is well regarded for many years as, a, as an independent reporting source, uh, I'm uh, very pleased to say we've, they've just started publishing as of two days ago, yesterday, I guess, the first article that Madeline and I did um, on this very subject, they're about to publish another one, and there's a third one in the hopper they've just gotten this morning. So look forward to truthout.org carrying our material to our ever broader audience. And to give you some idea what that is, they have one million unique visitors per month. So when someone like me goes to Truthout two or three times a week, that still only counts as one. So one million unique visitors go to Truthout every month to find out what's true and what they can rely upon 
and the academy has become uh, their source of primary source of economic information. So I recommend people go there and stay in touch with it as well as these calls and reading the academy publications, of course. Great. Well, Ronaldo, we just have under five minutes left for today's call, and um, given that uh, you know things are very much in flux in the economy, uh, I know the global economic forecast team just met uh, a few days ago. Uh, what insights? Um, does the team have that uh, we're going to be reading about soon? Can you give us a little, um, a little bit of a window into their thoughts? I can, but uh, you know, Howard, because you're on that team and you participate fully in it, um, I'm curious. Given what we've already talked about on this call, what are some of the pieces that you think we should kind of illuminate or further expand on in the few minutes left? Well, I think one question that keeps coming up in terms of people's and individual investments. Um, is where they should be looking to place their money. What, what are some of the growth areas that uh, we haven't already touched on that you think might be worth uh, people putting their funds into? Well, again, I mean... We're talking very generically here. We're not talking... You know, sure. The green sector, of course, clearly. Um, you know, um, right now, um, if you look at job growth, the number of people who have gone from being handymen to photovoltaic rooftop installers is getting to be a decent number. Meaning... People who are, uh, you know, we have, a, we have a series of trades in our country that we know do well for people and for the economy. Those trades are called, you know, the plumber, the electrician, the carpenter. And now we have a new one called the uh, solar installation um, worker. Um, I think what you're going to find is solar, wind, geothermal, um, biomass, uh, brown gas. All of these are the technologies and the transitional futures, uh, fuels of the future. I think that you'll find that um, natural gas, although I don't care for it because it's a fossil fuel, but it's only half as damaging in CO2 uh, as petroleum, I think that on a BTU basis, I think, in fact, maybe less than half at this point, uh, I think that there's going to be an increased use of natural gas here in the U.S. and around the world. Um, the availability of natural gas, how cheap it is, is going to provide a way to step down from, from oil quickly. Uh, and and, and in the longer term, of course, allow for geothermal and these other technologies I mentioned. So to me, what what would make sense and how you protect yourself, first of all, uh, make sure that your investments in the market – I'll give you an example. I I don't recommend individual stocks, but let me give you an example just because it's, 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 it's it's a good one. Take General Electric. General Electric went through this recession and just about got destroyed because of its financial group, which, like the banks, was overly leveraged in all the wrong directions. Uh, They were able to keep, and to Jeff Immelt's credit, he was able to keep that together. They refocused their business. They just got through last week selling the control stake in NBC, which I think was a very smart move. And they ended up uh, saying, we're going to refocus on those places where we're growing and making money. And if you look at where historically General Electric has been and has made money, it's light bulbs. A year ago, they were talking about selling it. Now they're talking about growing that division. Why? Because we're going to end up replacing the light bulbs in America and across the world. LEDs are going to replace uh, incandescent bulbs because they're so much more efficient and they last so much longer. It's It's a better way to save money. Um, the, the fastest growing sector in General Electric's portfolio is its alternative energy manufacturing. People don't realize how big General Electric is in turbines. Another sector which has been underperforming for General Electric, but which is now going to start leaping forward, I think, is locomotives. You know, this country, the United States, is going to get back into trains. And in fact, I suspect if we really get serious about it, we'll start developing all forms of, of, of transportation systems which we basically ceded in the last 30 years to Europeans and the Japanese, we're going to start building transportation systems for export, not just for domestic consumption. Uh, So I think there's a lot of areas in the economy to be watching. And so when you see a company like General Electric, which was going in the wrong direction, basing its future on on television and, and printing bad financial paper, when you see them admit they made a mistake, they cut, they slashed their dividend, and they said, okay, we better get back to basics. What do we do well? Gosh, we're a manufacturing company. And the fastest growing division we've got is an alternative energy. Why don't we go put some effort there? Let's sell this silly television stuff because we're not doing that well with NBC anyway. That isn't really what we're good at. Let's go get rid of that and take the money, $8 billion net, and let's put that $8 billion into something really useful. Let me hold you there. We're down to our last minute. Ronaldo. Last thoughts as we wind up the call for this month. 
last thoughts are these. It is such a pleasure to be able to do this call once a month um, because it does two things for me. Number one, it forces me to put my nose into the into the into the data a little bit deeper and really think through what I want to share with people. And I'm grateful for that because that discipline is useful for me and all the stuff that we write here in the academy. The second reason why I love these calls is I love having everybody who's a subscriber in the academy know more about how to protect their resources, which is what that last question was about. Know what it is they should say to their broker or their investment advisor. Know what it is they should be expecting. Be able to thoughtfully, intelligently plan their future and see themselves as leaders of a new economic force in the world, which is, which is the sunrise. And as they do that, achieve results for themselves personally and for their families and their friends, which exceed anything they're capable of getting in the normal traditional approach. So I'm grateful to be able to do these calls, and I hope everybody who's on it that gets any value from it at all, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, it's one of the best buys in the world. If for $25 a month to be on this call as a subscriber, you can't make 10 to 100 times that amount, then please ask us your questions so we can help you get there. I guess that's it. I'm happy that we're doing it. Thanks, Howard. Our time is up, and I thank you all for participating today and look forward to uh, having this again, this conversation again next Howard, thanks for hosting it. My pleasure. All right. Thank you all, and good day. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.